Let me thank the members of our ensemble for reading the text of Pentecost uh, in four different languages, in German, in Italian, in French, and in Hebrew. For those of us who may not be fluent in those languages, I'm going to read the same passage in English. This is from Acts, the second uh, chapter, verses 1 through 21, uh, the biblical account of the day of Pentecost. Let us listen for the word of God. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were in uh, Jerusalem... Uh, devout Jews from every nation under heaven living there. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In that day I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This book of Acts is certainly one of the most exciting and important books found in the whole of Scripture. It is a book that begins with the promise that Jesus made on the occasion of his ascension that we looked at two weeks ago. And then there comes this time of empowerment and preparation when the Holy Spirit descends upon the gathered disciples. And then through the apostles, the church begins to carry out the mission they had been given by Jesus Christ into all the world, fulfilling the Great Commission. If you have your Bibles open before you, you can just look in chapter 1 at verse 8, because this verse is an outline of the whole book of Acts. And this is what we read. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And that is precisely what happened. Gathered together in Jerusalem as they were instructed, the Spirit descended upon them. They were empowered to do the work that God had given them to do. And they start right where they are, in Jerusalem. And then they move out into Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, then into Samaria, which lies beyond Judea. It doesn't mention Galilee, but uh, Jesus had already spent a great deal of his time in ministry in Galilee. And then under the ends of the earth, and that is what happened when the apostles, like Paul and others, carried the gospel into the whole known world of that time. So you can see the concentric circles moving out with the witness to Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning Lord. It's like throwing a pebble into a pond and you see the circles moving out. That is exactly what is being what is occurring in the book of Acts, starting there in Jerusalem and moving out gradually and gradually into all the earth. And so Acts starts with this promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. He will not leave them orphaned, but he will return, much in the same way that he left. This Pentecost is the occasion for the return of Jesus through the Spirit. I will not leave you or orphan. My Father will send among you the Advocate. And so we have the birthday of the church, the empowerment, if you will, of the church of Jesus Christ. And truly, this day is a red-letter day on the church calendar. It's a red-letter day in the uh, pyramids of the church. This is the only day, save maybe some on Palm Sunday, if they emphasize the passion of Christ, will use the color red. But Pentecost is the day when we wear red to be reminded of the fire and flame of the Spirit that came upon the disciples then and continues to come among the disciples now. A few years ago, someone asked me an interesting question. They asked me, over the course of my ministry, how had my convictions changed? What are things that I believe now that I may not have believed earlier or don't believe now that I may have believed earlier? And that was a question that prompted a lot of soul-searching and reflection on my part. And as I thought about it, I said then, and I would still repeat, that for the most part, where I have changed is because of the program and work and power of the Holy Spirit. I've learned over the years something I did not know full well previously, and that is that the Holy Spirit is far more illuminating far more transformative, far more empowering and important than I as an individual believer or Presbyterian had believed, or even more important than we as Presbyterians in the Reformed faith have historically understood. And I see as never before the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit among us, how God is still active in the world today and in the life of his children, and often this is beyond our seeing or even our understanding until later we look back upon it. Now, two weeks ago, we did look at the ascension of Jesus, something that I referred to as a forgotten holiday among many of us. Several of you had written to me and said, you don't ever remember having heard a sermon on the ascension of Jesus and its importance. And I have to say, I'm not surprised because I cannot recall having heard a sermon on the ascension either. Maybe I did, and maybe you did as well, but we simply didn't uh, remember it or don't remember it. 
Um, but following the ascension comes this time of preparedness and empowerment that we call Pentecost. If the ascension is a festival that is forgotten, then Pentecost is a festival largely ignored or downplayed or de-emphasized in many of our Christian churches, even those like us in the Presbyterian and Reformed family of faith. And I want you to know that I was not alone. I don't think that I've been alone in this kind of ambivalent or uncertain feeling about the Holy Spirit and the person and work and place of the Holy Spirit and what we believe. Our forebears in the 1500s who drafted the Westminster Confession of Faith spent five and a half years trying to articulate what the Christian church believes about a host of matters and doctrines. They debated, they argued, they discussed. Over a hundred scholars and pastors brought in from the British world, many of them, most of them English, but there were at least four that came from Scotland that had a profound influence upon the draft that was made and the confession that was written. That never was really embraced in the English church, but it was carried back to Scotland and it became the primary confession of faith for Presbyterian and Reformed people and moved over to Ireland when the Scots immigrated to Northern Ireland and certainly came to America when so many Scots and Irish came to these shores and brought their faith and their confession of faith with them. But it's interesting that the Westminster Confession of Faith, for all of its words and all of its influence, didn't have much to say about the Holy Spirit. Which is odd because John Calvin, our spiritual forebear, had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. He deals with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he is sometimes referred to as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. So he gave a lot of emphasis and credence to the Holy Spirit and how it's understood or not it, or he or she is understood, depending how, how you refer to the Holy Spirit. Um, but you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, preacher, I've read the Confession of Faith, and there is a chapter there on the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is. Do you know why it's there? It was added in 1942 by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. It was not there originally. The Confession has been changed over the years. Things have been added. Things have been detracted. For good or for ill, there have been changes to how we confess our faith and what that faith is. Scripture itself is sometimes confusing in how it presents the Holy Spirit, and that adds to our difficulty, I think. In Acts 16, Luke speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God, and then just a verse or two later refers to that same Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. I don't find that bothersome. Some theologians say that that is an uh, inappropriate, confusing of the two persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the three persons. But I do not regard this as problematic because I see the Scriptures themselves referring to the Holy Spirit, not only as the Spirit of God, but as the Spirit of Jesus. And yet the point is, we as Christian people, and we in the Reformed faith, have struggled over the centuries to articulate and distinguish what the work of the Holy Spirit is and that how, how that applies to our life and our faith. Now, to be completely candid with you, when I went into the ministry many years ago, I did not have, personally, a very informed or developed view of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. Oh, I, I believe in the Holy Spirit because 
you aff we affirm our faith with the apostles in the Nicene Creed, that last little paragraph that gives some credence to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it was not greatly emphasized. And among the four great festivals of Christendom, and that would be Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost, certainly of those four, Pentecost has been the one to receive less attention and less emphasis. Uh, to be truthful, I was more acquainted when I went off to college and seminary with what I didn't believe about the Holy Spirit. I was acquainted with some of the abuses of the Holy Spirit in many churches, but that, that did not help me in knowing what I did believe. I knew more what I didn't believe than what I did. Several years ago in another church I was serving, I went with the men's group to watch a minor league baseball uh, game one evening, and when we came out of the stadium, the cars in the parking lot were plastered with these flyers inviting everyone to come to a Holy Ghost revival at the Holiday Inn Church. One of the elders there said, well, I'm not really certain what a Holy Ghost revival is, but it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that many Presbyterians would be lining up to attend. And I agree. So here are some of the things we don't believe about the Holy Spirit. We do not believe as a people of faith, as we articulate our faith, that Christians need a second baptism. In other words, once you're baptized with water, you have to be baptized again by the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that Scripture teaches that. In fact, we believe if you are a believer, if God is your Father, if you confess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the Holy Spirit has to be at work in your life because in Corinthians, Paul says, you can't even say Jesus is Lord unless it is the Holy Spirit at work in you prompting that. Some other people believe that some people have more of the Spirit and others less of the Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is some kind of substance that can be dispensed with an eyedropper or with a five-gallon bucket. That is not the case. In John, we read that God gives His Spirit without measure. It may be that some people are more sensitive to the program and work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not to say that they have more of the Spirit than other people in their lives. No, if Jesus is our Lord, if God is our Father, then of necessity the Holy Spirit has to be present with us, whether we recognize that or call it the Spirit or not. And neither are we among those uh, Christians who believe that the signs of the Spirit's presence are necessarily all those charismatic gifts that are mentioned in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, they may be gifts that are endowed, people are endowed with those gifts. They may be reflective of the work of the Spirit. But the greatest gift that God has given to His saints and to His church is the gift of love. The whole 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians is talking about these various gifts that God has given to the church. And then when you get to the end of that chapter, Paul says, but let me show you a more excellent way. And then he goes into chapter 13, the gift of love. The gift of love matters more than all of the other gifts we may have, whether it's prophecy or teaching or administration or speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues or healing, you name it. Our elders who are being prepared for ordination and examination will be asked soon, what are the gifts that they bring to the church? Well, you don't have to have one of those charismatic gifts necessarily. The greatest gift any of us can bring to the church is our love, our love of God and our love of neighbor. And how as officers in the church, we intend to live out of that. 
So these are some of the things we haven't believed. We are the people who want to talk more frequently about the fruits of the Spirit rather than the gifts of the Spirit. And I know this congregation for many years closed with a benediction and charge that Sid Batts had introduced, talking about the, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, 22 and following. And those gifts are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the Spirit is operative in your life, those are the kinds of the results that the Spirit is working. And who of us does not need to grow in each of those areas? Nevertheless, knowing what we don't believe doesn't help, is hardly sufficient for knowing what we do believe. So let me just spend a little time talking about what are the same things we confess and believe about the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. To begin with, we believe that apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have God in the present tense. God in the present tense with us right now. We would still have the Jesus of history behind us, the Christ of faith above us, and the return of Christ that we're anticipating in the future. But we would not be focusing upon what God is doing in the present moment and time in your life and in mine. The great preacher Halford Luckett said that Christianity spends too much time, perhaps, focusing on what happened in the past instead of looking at the present, what God is doing right now. So the Holy Spirit is God in the present tense. And we need to be aware and responsive to what God is doing in our life and times, in our churches, in our communities, and not just think about what God has done in the past or what God may do in the future. What is God about and up to right now in your life, in this church, in this world? We may not all agree what God is doing, but certainly we must affirm that God is at work in the here and now. So part of what uh, Pentecost means is bringing the risen and reigning Christ into the present tense and present moments. Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you orphaned. He was about to take leave of them as he was being released from his uh, spatial and temporal body, but he was promising to come back. But he said, in the interim, the Father is going to send the advocate, the Spirit among you, and he will guide you and all of the disciples into all truth. The Spirit will guide you. This is a powerful verse we have in John 16, where Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking it to his disciples uh, in his uh, discourse before his death. And he was saying that the Holy Spirit has much to teach them that they can't bear at the present moment. But when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. And that is why I say in, in matters of what I have how I've changed in my own life and ministry and my own personal faith. It has to do with the program and work of the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit that brings about those changes and causes us to look at life, at Scripture, at Jesus Christ with new eyes and hear what God is saying to us right now that may be slightly different from what God has said in the past. So the Holy Spirit brings God into the present moment in time, in your life and in mine. The Holy Spirit, secondly, is also a, the illuminator of the human mind. We cannot read and interpret Scripture correctly unless the Holy Spirit is involved in that process. And that is why we often have a prayer of illumination 
before we read the scriptures so that the scriptures and the spirit will open our eyes to hear what is being said and to respond accordingly we can't predict of course how the spirit is going to work but we affirm that the spirit is at work and so we hear the, the word with clarity and conviction just as the disciples did on Pentecost. Hearing in their own language, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in your home if someone walked by when one of our readers was reading in another language to see if they recognized it or what, thinking what's going on there. Where there's so many people from so many places gathered in Jerusalem, they all heard what God was saying in their own tongue. And there was communication, a reversal of the Tower of Babel where the languages were confused. Here we can understand and communicate through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God in the present tense. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the human mind. The Holy Spirit is also the regenerator of the human heart. The Spirit is what leads us to conviction, to repentance, and to faith. Now we can't predict how the Spirit's going to work in the lives of any of us. Sometimes the way the Spirit is at work is inexplicable, but we can look back and see how the Spirit was at work influencing us, closing some doors, opening other doors, bringing us to conviction and to commitment. When Nicodemus visited Jesus at night, he was curious about Jesus' statement that you have to be born from above. And Jesus is talking about the, the coming of the Spirit. And he says the, the wind, pneuma, which is the same word for Spirit, the wind blows where it wills. You can't predict where it's coming from or where it's going. You can see how is it at work, how it is changing things. But so it is with the Spirit of God. We are not in control of how or where the Spirit moves. That is God's business. So, God in the present tense, the illuminator of the human mind, the regenerator of the human heart. Also, the Spirit is what brings us to sanctification. Now, that's a theological concept I want to speak to just for a second. We believe in the church that we're justified by grace through faith. And justification is that process where God declares us holy. We've been set apart. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and others through his life, death, and resurrection. So trusting in his intervention on our behalf... We are declared not guilty. We are justified. But something has to follow justification. And theologically what that is is sanctification. That is we respond to the Holy Spirit by growing and changing in ways that honor God and better serve the neighbor. And that's why I say in terms of how I've changed, I either blame or credit the Holy Spirit to enable me to see and understand differently things that I find in the scriptures. Maybe interpret them differently than our ancestors did in the past. I was thinking just about the, the confession of faith, how that has been changed. Our forebears not only changed it by adding things to it that were not given enough emphasis, but by removing things from it that they later found to be objectionable and contrary to scripture. In the Scots Confession... Catholic churches are referred to as the synagogue of, synagogues of Satan. That's removed now. The church removed that. That was inappropriate. One confession calls uh, the Pope the Antichrist, which we do not believe. And that's been removed. So we change our faith. We remove. We add to it. I think it very telling that the Holy Spirit 
comes as wind and flame. Think about those two metaphors. The Holy Spirit is certainly a mystery. And when you're dealing with the mysterious, you have to speak in terms that are not so mysterious. You speak of the infinite in terms of the finite. You speak of the lesser known in terms of the uh, more known. But wind and flame, those are powerful images and metaphors for the Holy Spirit because both can be destructive and both can be empowering. They change us. They change whatever they touch. I'll never forget March the 3rd, 1966. I was a sophomore in college and I had taken the worst job I'd ever had in my whole life. Uh, and shortly after I'd worked in this position, about a year, I went to work in a church as a youth director and been in the church ever since. But I, I hated that job because what I did, I, I would report to the regional Allstate Insurance uh, office building there in Jackson, Mississippi, and I would work from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 10 o'clock every evening looking for lost files. I would be given a list of file numbers, 8 or 10 numbers long, and I had to go in this massive room filled with cubicles and desks and go over every desk and see if I could find these files that had been lost, looking, seeing, comparing the list. About that time I started wearing glasses and also realizing I wanted to do something other than that in my life. But at any rate, when I was reporting to work one afternoon, it was in uh, the spring of the year, it was March 3rd, I remember the date, I looked out over the horizon because there at the office building in North Jackson, it was a little elevated, but you could see south, and I saw this massive tornado moving across the horizon from right to left. I, I wasn't frightened. I was just mesmerized. It wasn't coming toward me. It was moving to the side. But as I stood there and watched it, I just could not imagine all the death and the destruction it was taking place beneath that funnel-shaped cloud I was watching. It was awesome in the worst kind of way because it was destructive. It was reported that that was an F5 tornado, one of the strongest. It cut a destructive swath through Mississippi and Alabama, killed, I think it was 58 people, injured over 500, some of them critically. So the wind can destroy. It destroyed a whole shopping center there in Jackson called Candlestick Park, leveled it to the ground. People died with the roofs collapsing in. So yes, wind can destroy, but wind can also be harnessed to do good things, to create energy and empowerment. If you ever drive much out west, you can see just acres and acres of fields of windmills turning in the wind, turning turbines generating electricity. Heat also can destroy or it can be harnessed for good. The lights on, the sound, the TV you're watching are empowered by heat of some sort produced by coal or nuclear fission or wind or solar panels or whatever. But heat can empower as well as destroy. So too the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes among us as individuals and as a church and it destroys a lot of what we may have believed or thought previously. But as it clears away the dross, burns away the dross, 
it can also create new opportunities for serving God and others. So the Holy Spirit is transformational. And I don't think early in my ministry I recognized that to the extent that I should. The Spirit is always at work removing what needs to be removed, empowering what needs to be empowered. The New Testament closes with a prayer that's been on the lips of Christians throughout the ages. Maranatha. It means come, O Lord. Praying for the return, the physical return of Christ. But until that moment occurs, doesn't mean that Christ is not present with us. He is through his spirit with us, in us, beside us, working with us. Spiritually present. And his presence can be both a promise and a threat because he changes us, sometimes in ways we don't want to be changed. So the Spirit comes as a refiner's fire, removing the impurities, burning away the droves, fashioning us into the beloved community, united in Christ Jesus and empowered to serve him and others. Pentecost is therefore rightly understood as the birthday of the Christian church, the birthday of this reformed and reforming community. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, in your quickening power and illumine our minds and regenerate our hearts and recreate our very lives so that we may be new creations in and for Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.